0: Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. With guest co-hosts...
1: Alpha Shard.
0: Usain.
2: Jason, how do you feel about breaking up Dan Jin anyway? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh... It needed to be done. It had a
4: time
2: and a place.
0: In order to maintain diplomatic relations, I have no comments.
2: Mega
4: Dan?
0: Yeah, Mega that's interesting.
2: Sounds better than Dan Bear, I'll tell you that.
5: Oh no, Dan Bear is good too. Luckily, you ended the stream. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Polycast episode 303. It's the main team, and I am joined by Dan Q. Hello, hello. Makalua.
3: 303, so we're not quite to 404, podcast not found.
5: Mega Bears fan. Dan won't let me sleep.
3: I know, right?
5: And 100% more guest co-hosts. First with Drusine, Amber. I hardly know her. And Alpha Shard. Still trying to get the AI off my lawn. It's never going to (laughs) happen. (laughs)
3: <laughs> puppy agrees <laughs>
0: yeah i am in particular very frustrated with the current sparseness of the unit upgrade trees how there's only like one unit upgrade in general every other era and so that leaves large chunks of gameplay where you're using obsolete units and if the other guy is able to get musketmen and you're still using swordsmen, it's like no contest And it's really frustrating that we don't have more of those incremental unit upgrades like Gods and Kings was very good with adding like the composite bow and the Great War era units that I thought did a really good job of filling out that unit tree and making it so that wherever you were, it didn't feel like there was as much of a disparity between one unit type and the immediate upgrade after it like you had to be maybe two upgrades before you had an overwhelming advantage.
2: I absolutely, too, would like to see some more incremental unit upgrades. I think what you need to have in a situation like that...
4: Light cavalry.
2: (sighs) (laughs) ...is with swordsmen, other than that the the easy counter-argument would be just have lots more swordsmen than musketmen. Okay, yeah, uh, there's that, but of course
0: we're limited on that based on having one unit per hex. And production costs are just so high, too. I mean, you gotta sacrifice so much if you're gonna build that massive army, unless you just spammed out a whole crap ton of warriors right at the start and then are just upgrading them.
3: So, hey, guess what? Linux and Mac people, you can now play Civ Rise and Fall.
0: Oh boy. Hey. Wow. Has the expansion been out for a year already? <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, it, was, it didn't take them a year. They are one patch behind, however. They're still stuck with the February patch as opposed to the March one. Now, does that
0: mean we still can't play online with them? Yeah, surely cross platform multiplayer. No, no, that's
3: the other small <laughs> caveat. No, there's still no cross platform between Mac and Linux and Windows. Now, Mac and <laughs> Linux can play with each other, just they can't play with Windows people, so yeah.
2: According to the news report on altchar.com, as reported by user CJ, Aspire is reporting that certain game breaking bugs prevent it from being a viable feature for now. That is, Linux and Mac Civ 6 players playing with PC Civ 6 players. Mm, actually this we've heard this before this is actually isn't anything new
4: that is weird to me this engine was built somewhere in 2015 the fact that they wouldn't have had port for all platforms is unrealistic to me but i don't know how they built it but it's suspect to me
5: weren't they like having parallel working on it between linux and mac versus windows (sighs)
4: it it should have i don't know
5: it, like it, it, it sounds have, like it was designed for Windows first and then tried to be made compatible with Linux rather than building something that would work on all three from the start. So that's what my impression of what happened, but I could be that's wrong.
4: That's what happened, but in the years that they were starting this engine, it's weird that they wouldn't have uh, built it for that purpose because that was when all the other people were getting that done. Yeah. Okay.
1: I do find it
5: awkward that indie developers can manage this somehow. I mean, I know their games are less complex, but they also have less people by a lot.
4: Well, part of it is because very recently for Unity anyway, and this wasn't always the case. Like when I was working 2013, 2014, Linux was not available for Unity uh, Unity, uh, games. But in 2015 and going on, yeah, Linux was incredibly easy to put in. So that's why it's all cross-platform all the time now.
0: So what you're saying is that Civ 7 will be on Unity. Confirmed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Unlikely, but hopefully
4: they take some of the stuff from the stores or whatever they need to find into Civ 7 to just make it compatible. I don't know why it's not, but I guess they didn't do it, and maybe they should. I don't know.
3: I would love to know exactly the nature of these game-breaking bugs. Is it fun bugs, or is it just... oh. Oh, man.
4: It it would have been something something where the game didn't even boots up or something like that.
5: Yeah, like you cannot play. Uh, Same thing with cross platform. Like those kinds of bugs just make it so that the game between the two people is impossible at that point. Nothing fun about it, unfortunately.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It makes sense that the Linux and Mac versions being a patch behind would mean that you cannot interact with PC players, but you would think once it was up to the patch, then okay, seeing as how fine the development is coming on Windows beforehand, and then it's going to Aspire Media, which of course is not connected to 2K, the owners of developer for Axis Games, except through contracts who have their ports for Mac and Linux. But yeah, these certain game-breaking bugs, we've seen references to this before. I kind of get the feeling that until Civilization VI is complete, and there are no more patches, that maybe then, and only then, will we actually see cross-platform multiplayer And then, at that point, it would be, well, there's no more developments coming, so maybe we get one bug, and and now we've hit another. We also don't know if this is the same game-breaking bugs or bugs, apparently bugs, so at least two. Are they the same bugs that were upon vanilla release? We don't know. So I'm going to speculate that once Civilization VI is complete, then we will finally have cross-platform play.
1: Is there a programming code language barrier that prevents this, or is it just... There is
2: a pretty significant
5: in one in that DirectX does not really work on Mac or Linux.
1: That's what I was thinking.
5: And uh, if you try to run something under Wine, it depends how recently the newest DirectX came out, whether that's possible. Because like Wine keeps up pretty well, but not that well. Like, They can't instantly turn around an entire new DirectX version and make it viable for all games. I don't have the technical knowledge to describe how difficult it is, but apparently it's not a walk in the park. So that is a problem.
2: And Aspire Media did confirm on the twenty second of March that all patches will be released later than the PC version release. Which is the consistent yeah. scenario, right? So they have to wait until the patch is complete, and maybe they even have they being Aspire have to wait until it is released before they can then go in and do something, or it's, hey, we've finished the patch, here it is, by the way, we're releasing it in a day or two. (laughs) Given everything else that we've talked about in terms of the technical limitations, to be able to translate that into whatever I have to do for the Mac and Linux versions, they're not going to be able to turn that around that quickly. But it's this continual, not cross-platform thing because of certain game-breaking bugs. I think as a community, we might understand a little more, if they were willing to elaborate So that even if we as a community didn't understand completely, somebody in the know in the industry could say, oh, okay, I understand this because here's another product, whether it's a game or not, that is experiencing the exact same thing. But as Drew was pointing out, when there are other games that are developed initially for Windows and then Mac and Linux... And they're coming out at comparable times or exactly the same time, and there is cross platform multiplayer. Is it just the fact that the game is complex, that there's something going on with the code, that they really didn't take into account the fact that you're going to want cross platform multiplayer? Even though they said from the beginning, before the game was ever released, there was going to be that. So I think the focus to me, other than yay, Mac and Linux users, you can now run the expansion pack, and yeah, it is less than two months after the expansion was released, but it's just, what is going on with this cross-platform multiplayer? It just seems to be the same answer over and over and over again. We never get any farther with this.
0: It's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. Having come from uh, playing uh, Dark Souls and stuff like that, it, it was always frustrating that all my friends would be on PC and Xbox, and I'd be on PS4, and one of my friends would be like, hey, I just got Dark Souls, and I'd be like, awesome, what's your username so I can <laughs> invade you and murder you and steal all your stuff? And they'd be like, oh, nope, sorry, I'm on Xbox. Too bad. Too <laughs> bad. And you can be invaded and murdered in
2: Civilization 2. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, Ex- right, exactly. <laughs> well, apparently
5: this isn't prohibitive if the devs know what they're doing, because it's like Rocket League, you, you can play PC against console, yeah. and that's yeah. a controller <clears throat> game, so it's not like shooters where you have precision aiming advantage or something. It's uh, uh, without, Even on PC, you're probably using controllers.
4: Without knowing how the engine was built, it's I, I, there's not much I can...
0: Yeah. I'm sure that a really big part of it is probably just that the mac linux port is outsourced to a different company i imagine that all the games that probably do have the cross-platform compatibility you've got the same group of developers or at least different teams within the same development house are probably working on both versions so that there's not that offset between releasing a update on one version and then a month or two later releasing an update on the other
2: Either that or you've got two developers under the same publisher umbrella. Oh, hey, maybe they could give the uh, responsibility for the ports over to Rockstar. There you go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're not busy. Yes. Civilization VI, now with 100% more
2: carjackings. (laughs) (laughs) There always has to try to be some kind of levity in a situation like this. And really, we are speculating here. We're basing our speculation on what has been said publicly, what has not been said publicly. The timing are own knowledge, such as it is within the gaming industry or the computing industry in general. Also in news, Civilization VI fans discover game-changing typo, as reported by Kotaku, are messing with artificial intelligence priorities, as reported by PC Gamer. So this comes to us initially from PC Gamer on the 15th of March, and Kotaku on the 16th of March. A something-awful thread pointed to a bizarre irregularity in Civilization Six's code earlier this month. In some instances, the AI civilization leader's default priorities were yield was spelled incorrectly. Instead of Y-I-E-L-D, it was Y-E-I-L-D. The players speculated that normally code like yield production 25 would make a CIV prioritize production and perform really well, but the misspelled yield production 25 means nothing to the game. So AI leaders afflicted with this dreaded spelling bee bug obsess over things like religion, sometimes to their own detriment because they have no default values for other important qualities. You can see this within five lines of code within the leaders.xml file. It deals with not only production but also science, culture, gold, And faith. So it's interesting that the spelling error is with faith, yet it seems, anecdotally anyway, to lead the AI to prioritize religion. Anyway, Kotaku also says it wouldn't matter if they misspelled everywhere, but Yield is written with the correct spelling in every other instance across all of other Civ 6 data files. Right? So if Yield was spelled incorrectly throughout, then it would be quote-unquote working as intended. Or is it working as intended now? Well... Apparently not, because Firaxis confirmed the spelling errors with a mistake. They sent a brief statement to PC Gamer after being asked to comment, which was we're aware of the community-reported bug that has a minor impact on AI behavior.
5: At first, I wasn't sure if this was real, but after hearing that, hearing them say minor impact, I'm calling BS. (laughs) So did they
4: actually say that there was a a difference between uh, yield and spelled properly and yield otherwise?
2: Well, Phyrexus didn't get that specific, although they did say, we've also made sure that everyone knows that I goes before E except after C, or other weird exceptions. Thanks to all who helped bring this to our attention, and there will be a fix included in our next update. It's also not clear whether the mistake was always there or if it was introduced in an update, because, well, we have had a few, even before the expansion pack came out.
3: Okay. Well, if you go into what the guy did, I think it kind of points out that it may have been there all along. Just to, to summarize, he was noticing that they did tend to prioritize faith a heck of a lot with the misspelling in there. And we've all been like super spanned by missionaries.
5: Well, it might also
4: yeah, just be like AIs did that
3: in the it, past, too, though.
4: Like, it may just be different.
3: Uh, yeah,
4: it may be just they're confirming their own biases because I'm going to take a different perspective that I didn't see in this article. Having been working in a game company studio with other people. I'll make the story short. I was working with another person who was dealing with the hint system, writing notes. He started out, and then I'm doing the rest of it. And I'm noticing, huh, my notes are not going in at all. And the reason I looked back at the code, and it's because uh, he's misspelled it. So the entire code was tainted with this misspelling. And I had two options. I could either change the misspelling and take about three hours not even knowing if I was going to screw up and break other parts of the code by quote-unquote fixing it, or I could continue those notes purposefully misspelled just so the game works. And that's what I opted to do, of course. So what I don't know, because you know we don't know the code of Civ 6, whether or not the yield was incorrect on purpose or whatever, but that would be a PR kind of flub to say, oops, we spelled it wrong. It, it, I don't know. But I can see possibility that it was supposed to be like that and they're just trying to Well someone screw to... it up at some point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> some... Yeah, I've had this situation happen to me as well before and when this sort of thing happens, you usually have to just take the spelling error and just kind of run with it and own it. But yep. if based on like the screenshot, it looks like they're talking about the leader database has the wrong value. So I would imagine that it's just there's no reference to that anywhere else. And it sounds like that's what they said in their statement, too. So
1: all right.
0: Weren't people saying that they were testing the game the, with the
5: spelling error corrected and it had a noticeable effect, though? I don't know how you could detect bias. a noticeable effect. Yeah.
0: Well, and that could work both ways, too, because it could be if they did run with the spelling error and everything's using the spelling error, then if you were to change it, that would have a noticeable effect in that it would make things work not as intended. Whether or not that would actually improve the game, you know, it would be up for debate. But
2: we're looking at very limited automated tests using an automate mod to, of course, just have the AI play itself and then have it go to conclusion and then investigating graphs and the timeline to see what the AI was prioritizing in terms of its yields, etc. I think once the there is this fix included in the next update. I'm pretty certain there are going to be some people going to that leader's XML file and seeing if the spelling was corrected, or if they went back to all the other XML files and made so that the spelling was incorrect. I would think that the simplest solution would be to correct the spelling mistake that you're fixing five lines of code rather than purposely messing up, I don't know, how many more dozens for the spelling mistake. And then we'll have to see, as a community, whether we really notice a difference or not. Because... Although there's some anecdotal evidence to suggest that this is having an impact, and, and it certainly seems to be in line with the notion of, my gosh, the AI seems to prioritize religion, but is this really the reason why, or is it only the reason why? Or maybe it's just one of the reasons why. We'll have to wait and see. But it is definitely a oopsie, if for no other reason than, well, Fraxis has confirmed is, is an oopsie. Good for them, don't get me wrong, and it's good that they've acknowledged that, and that there is going to be a fix
0: so Well, there would have to be some other factor that would be causing the AIs to prioritize Faith, because if I'm understanding this correctly, all of these yields are misspelled, so they yes. should all be yeah, equally including. not important to the yeah. AIs, so That's why it's, they shouldn't it's why it's be prioritizing yeah, they, they shouldn't be prioritizing any one thing over the other, if I'm understanding this correctly. Oh, that was my understanding
2: and one of my prefaces at the start. Yeah, that it also included the faith line that was spelled incorrectly. But
0: there Which could be other that... factors like, you know, map features and stuff like that, that cause them to prioritize faith that could be in the code. So, you know, who knows?
4: Yeah, that's why it gives me the perspective that it's possibly written the way it's supposed to go. They're just trying to not admit something else is wrong with the values. That's just a different perspective, but it's anything's possible. Well, I another- we don't know the code.
2: They're coming out with a fix. Maybe when they come out with a fix, they'll be doing something else, too, with it that may not be as easy to be seen in the code as compared to previous versions, unless people are going ahead and caching previous versions, or it's like, hey, don't download the latest update yet. We want to copy what the files were like so that we can compare once the new update has been pushed. The examples from Straight Wake Shark on Something Awful Forum, where he was demonstrating this, says each civilization starting in the same spot on a true start Earth map. And of course, this could have absolutely nothing to do with it, but I think it just goes to show that there are some other variables involved that there's definitely something going on here, but whether we're connecting this particular issue with what we've seen with regards to religion, I think it's questionable for the reasons that we've identified, or if there's something else that this is actually doing. And now with that correction, we see that there's a change, but yeah, whether it's far better or worse, it just does kind of scream that, again, in the spelling mistake, not being consistent. So it could have been a couple different people working in the XML files or quite frankly, it could have been, you know, late on a Tuesday afternoon. Someone wanted to go home. They missed it. It's in there and it's now been noticed by the community. Gata for access for owning up to it when it was pointed out and committing to fixing it in the next update and i'm certain we'll be following up on this because as a community we're going to want to see and test this for ourselves yeah not just rely on other people's reports and speculation but there's definitely something going on here whether it's a mountain or a mohill i guess remains to be seen
4: it'll be great if it's like oh they fixed that and then suddenly the game is two levels harder than it used to be or something. it's like oh <laughs> this is what it was all along crap <laughs> <laughs>
2: None of my fellow panelists have heard this voicemail. They have not seen a subsequent private message that was directed to me by a past recurring guest on Polycast, B. Keiko Brandon Keith Hallmark. And he prefaced his email, which I saw first, which was, I tried to leave uh, Polycast voicemail a message, but I guess what I was saying was too long. It cut me off and hung up on me. I'd be happy to discuss this in detail, obviously, if I wanted to, uh, if I blithered on so long that the voicemail just cut me off. And so we have, in fact, tested it, that if you want to leave Polycast a voicemail, you can, but if it's longer than two minutes, you're going to have to break it up into multiple messages. Part of the reason I didn't send this was because I wanted their reactions on the panel. Maybe their reactions will be very similar to you listeners, your initial reactions in hearing this.
6: Hi, Polycast folks. This is your friend B Keiko, and I am calling because I could use your advice. I have been listening to the podcast, even though uh, I haven't really been playing Civ 6 a whole lot recently. I got several games in, mm, about 200 hours or so, and I gotta admit, guys, I think Civ 6 is a really bad game. It's a really bad game for me, at least the base one is. And based on the reviews from Steam i got to think that I'm not the only one who's feeling that. I'm not the only player in those shoes. But at this point, the expansion's come out. I really love the Civilization series, and so I'm wondering, now that you've had some chances to play the expansion, if you guys can advise me if I should be getting the expansion for myself. So before uh, you just blindly charge in, let me know what you guys are thinking, I thought I would explain a little bit. About why I didn't enjoy Civ 6. What turned me off from the game? Because as you folks know, I really enjoyed Civ 5, so I was surprised as anyone to find out that Civilization 6 just isn't the game for me. At least as it is in the base game.
2: I'm going to stop there for a moment. He hasn't gotten into his specifics yet, but I guess my first kind of reaction was. He got several games in, about 200 hours or so, and then he decided that this was a really bad game, at least for him. Qualified that it's a really bad game for him, he's played Civilization titles before, he's played 200 hours, which even for a game like Civilization, I think that's a reasonable amount of time, plus several games, to come up with a view that, you know what, I'm just not feeling this.
3: No, he's right about not being the only person because I've seen other people talking about that, that at least the base game before expansions, they're like, eh, or, you know, maybe not so much dislike it, but they don't love it, but they don't hate it. And we're used to just jumping into civ and going, woo, you know, and loving it.
2: And I think for a game like Civilization, with the time investment that you're going to have to make in order to have a meaningful experience, if not love it, you've really got to like it. Just to like it, to pick it up casually now and again, that's not a Civ game. So uh, <laughs> if you're really not feeling it, especially when there's another Civilization title that you could continue to play and enjoy, which was Civ Five, you'd go right back to it.
0: Something
4: that I've noticed is I haven't been playing as much as I would have hoped for. And part of it is an insistence on intrinsic motivation. And what I'm trying to say with that is that Rise and Fall is sort of forcing the player to care about this uh, dynamic empire that goes from the Golden Age to the Dark Age. And it's a bunch of systems that are not extrinsic which is the growing of your empire, growing of your cities, growing of your yields, all of these uh, systems in Rise and Fall are not extrinsic. They're all more about talking about the story of your Civ or your Civ rising and falling by making some policy card modifiers or loyalty modifiers. And that's, I think, part of what what he's having the problem with, and I also am having that problem with as well. The game changes. (sighs) They feel sideways. They feel like they're not really focused on making the game better, more like more depthful, if that means anything.
2: He's only played the base game. He hasn't played the expansion pack. So based on what it is that he's been oh, reading plan. about the expansion pack, like you've been saying, Drew, yeah, that yeah. It, it sounds like hearing that experience has been enough right now to have him press pause on, do I really want to get back into Civ Six with this expansion? knowing what it brings, because is it really enough to make the experience that I had with Civilization Six any better? It's enough to get him to say I'm considering it, but it's not enough for him to go ahead and purchase it. I don't even think there is a demo for this. Is there a demo for the expansion? No. No. So there isn't even a demo. So you've got to commit to purchasing it and then to turn around and play it.
0: Well, much to Drusain's point, I would kind of agree that if you weren't enjoying Civ 6 before, I don't think the expansion is going to bring you on board. I I kind of agree in that it's a lot of kind of sideways features. I like them. I think they're good mechanics. And if you like Civ 6, the expansion is good. I mean, even just for the new civilizations, I think it's a pretty good content pack, regardless of the new rules. But if you weren't enjoying Civ 6 before, I don't think Rise and Fall is going to make you enjoy it. I mean, pretty much all of my friends that are Civ players are basically either still playing Civ 5 or are not playing Civ 6. And a big part of that has to do with the AI just not being there yet. And I remember similarly, there were a lot of people who weren't on board with Civ 5 until Brave New World came out. I'm not necessarily going to say that I would agree that Civ 6 is worse than Civ 5, and I definitely think that the vanilla package for Civ 6 was way above and beyond the vanilla package for Civ 5. But I can definitely understand why someone's not digging it, because a lot of the new stuff in Civ 6 really changes kind of the pace of the game and how it flows. I very much like how much more relevant the map is in this game than in previous games where, you know, just pop down cities kind of wherever and it doesn't really matter. But now you've really got to be paying really close attention to where you're putting things and how you're growing and what you're building where, you know, I like that. But I can definitely see why some people wouldn't.
4: I had thought that he was playing the expansion. So I would say change my course. If you are into the whole intrinsic motivation, the idea of feeling motivated just being able to see your empire in motion, then, yeah, it definitely is better in that sense. If you're more of a player who's looking for extrinsic motivations uh, when you play, then this expansion does nothing to help you.
0: Yeah, I think it would really come down to what kind of Civ player he is. So, if you're a very aggressive, warmongering type player, then I definitely understand why you wouldn't like Civ 6 because the combat, I would say, probably isn't quite as robust as Civ 5. It's not as polished. But if you're a builder, if you like playing Civ games for the building aspect, I would have to think that you would be loving Civ 6 because the building
1: is so much more of an important part of it,
0: unless you just don't like the feel of how the building
1: works. I think uh, it's interesting what Brian was bringing up about extrinsic, and I think this has been an issue with Civ in general, is that you can't really win the game with the other Civs, so to speak. You can't build a relationship with these Civs if they can backstab you at any moment, even if they're at friendly. I like building, so I am enjoying Civ 6. But if his issue is that the interaction with the other Civs and making them feel real and that you can work with them or whatever. I could see his point then.
2: I know Civilization VI improved the diplomacy aspect and the modifiers of liking you and not liking you in terms of the absolute values and then also taking into account things like debouncements and their position on the map. And their agendas to try to understand. But there are a lot of moving pieces in there. And if you initially meet a civilization especially, and you can go in and you can see that there's a positive value and a negative value, and you want to learn that, it's like, okay, well, I need to send a delegation in order to be able to get that information so I have an idea of what's going on. But it still seems like even now, when you meet an AI... On that first turn, if you don't ask for a delegation and they don't give it to you then, even on the turn after that, they're likely to say no until if and when they contact you to say, hey, I would like to send a delegation to you. So there is that kind of limit, whereas Civilization 4 and Civilization 5 would have that information up front upon contact. In terms of what Brandon has said, and he's listed three things. We've touched on two of them in part. Uh, I'm going to start with his second one, based on what has been said on the panel here, without even, again, identifying what his specific reasons were for not liking the base game. The game hides the fun from the player and forces players to do unfun things. Quote-unquote. He doesn't elaborate on that, but I think maybe we're starting to touch on that a little bit with maybe some of the diplomacy stuff. He also talks about the game features massive failures of flavor.
3: Hmm. Hmm. I
0: don't agree there that might just be because yield is spelled wrong this is, something
4: that, <laughs> this is something that i have argued on the forums at one point about the lack of flavor is that and i don't know if this is what he means but like in civ 5 it felt like each civ was a lot more unique like uh only one ability but each ability was unique whereas in civ 6 every civ is getting small uh, little bonuses that are so uh Miniscule in general, like in the forums, I was talking about how Russia has a lot of very forgettable bonuses, like, you know, a little bit of science and culture from the trade routes and blah, blah, blah. There's a ton of stuff for Russia, but like there's no cohesive message for Russia, and so it always felt like a lot of the civs didn't really have their own personality, they were just slightly different compared to Civ 5. I don't know if that's why he's referring to it, but that's how I feel about the difference between those two games.
1: Civ 6, their workers can enhance wonders, and they're, they're the only Civ that can do that with workers, so that's at least one ability.
4: Yeah, yeah, the China builder thing. But remember, China also has a lot of stuff, but I can't remember them all. Whereas I can still remember most of the stuff from CIFI because they were all uh, pretty they unique.
1: made the game play differently because of those uniqueness.
5: Yeah, there was some stuff that straight up was game altering.
4: Uh, most of your games you build around their unique ability but instead of six you generally don't have to or generally don't need to
0: i think a big part of that too is that there's uh not terribly great balance between like the different district types and different units and stuff like that so there are certain districts and certain units that are generally better than other districts and other units and so if you have a unique district and it's not a campus or a commercial hub Maybe I'll build it. Commercial hubs in the campuses are like so important that it doesn't matter what civ you are. Those are going to probably be the first two districts you build in any new city.
4: And compare that to like Darius from uh, Civ 5, where you get so much of a bonus out of Golden Ages that you will build for Golden Ages.
2: I kind of feel like, Drew, that you're pointing to a symptom rather than the cause, just kind of like what Jason was getting at, that we see it first in the failures of flavor, but I think there's lots of really good and, yes, bad also, and in some cases, inconsequential abilities for civilizations, but it's through the execution of them and the mechanics, like the district thing. Hey, I'm Brazil. Look at me. I can get a neat entertainment district. It's like, yeah, well, that's great, except you'd be much better off if you could have you know, the unique campus like Korea gets, because you're going to be able to build it earlier, and you're going to want to build that earlier, and you're going to want to replicate that through many more of your cities more quickly than you would an entertainment district. But mm, it could very well be that that's what he's going for.
0: And if the game did have some better diplomacy and AI where you weren't constantly being backstabbed by the AIs and, you know, they weren't being quite so opportunistic about, you know, attacking anyone who's weaker than them, then maybe building a culture and entertainment oriented civilization where you do have theaters and entertainment hubs all over the place, you know, maybe that would be more viable. But as it stands now, especially at the higher difficulties, the AIs are just like, I want to kill everyone in my way. And if you're not building units, and if you're not keeping up in technology, and if you don't have the economy to support all those units, then you're just going to get rolled over. So yeah, again, it depends really much on how this person's playing the game and on what difficulty level they're playing at. Because personally... I enjoy the game a lot when I'm playing on King and Emperor difficulty because the AI isn't so over-the-top aggressive and doesn't start with all the annoying bonuses. And when I go up to Immortal, it just becomes almost more of a frustrating grind because you've got to work so much harder to get over those early hurdles. And then once you're over those hurdles at the beginning of the game, I mean, then it just doesn't feel like it's any harder from then on out. It just, the difficulty just goes downhill. So I would really like to see much more robust diplomatic features. And Rise and Fall kind of goes a little bit in that direction with the new Alliance systems. But I'm really disappointed that they took out things like the reciprocal trade bonuses. Like in Civ 5, when you sent a trade route to another Civ, like right at the start oh, of the game, yes. Yes. it gave both parties money. So not only is it good for you to send your trade routes out but you actually want other players to send trade routes to you because you get money from that as well whereas in Civ 6 don't get that unless you have an alliance or there's like a lot of districts in the city and then you do get some yields and there's no reason, therefore, to be more likely to be peaceful towards them if they are sending trade routes to you because you're not getting a benefit from that. They're getting all the benefit from it. And if you declare war on them and pillage all those trade routes, that's just more money for you.
2: Thank goodness for the alliance system because at least at some point you can work to cultivate a relationship where in the case of a trade route being sent, short of you know an, an inherent civilization's unique ability where you'd be getting it otherwise, that you could be getting something from the trade routes being sent to you other than a road to their front door if you want to go smash smash them in the face for sending it to you in the first place.
0: <laughs> right. And that's all assuming that just another AI doesn't just bribe them into joint warring you. Even the ones that are friendly and allied to you are still way too willing to go to joint wars against their friends and allies. And I do like that Rise and Fall now has that emergency thing that punishes betrayal, but it's not stopping the AI from doing it.
2: The execution of the emergency system, the timing of when those appear, it's just like Civilization Five. Gee, how many points of faith are you over for your great profit? I'm 90, how about you? 130, who knows when it's going to arrive.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah.
2: It's like I still don't have a feel for it, and I shouldn't feel like I have to have a feel for it. There should be something that can be known for players like us who want to know if you take... This step or this step, if not, it will absolutely happen and increases the likelihood that it is going to happen. Yeah. But also the benefit for engaging in that emergency, if you are in fact successful, is also worth your time. Because otherwise you can say, I'm just going to declare my own emergency and I'm going to wipe them out of my own agenda. I don't need you to tell me that there's a military emergency because they're taking over city-states, or that there's a religious emergency because they're about to win the game. I can see the yields from the game. I can see that they've already converted three out of the four civilizations that are on the map. I'm already on it.
5: Well, I feel like this is a little bit off track. The mechanics dictate actions like this by the AI, and betrayal and such, that you really should do it often. And as long as that's the case, I feel like the AI should do it like I don't want the AI to play badly on purpose in the name of flavor. I'm not okay with that even conceptually.
0: No, and and I agree. It is the mechanics that are part of the problem. Again, the underlying problem is that there's not enough good reason to be friendly with the yeah, other well, civilizations okay. because that there, there isn't that. enough benefit. If there were more benefit, and again, I think Civ 5 did that better than Civ 6 at least with the trade routes and stuff like that where you have more of a reward and you that reward comes into play much earlier in the game than it does in Civ 6. Yeah, I could get behind that.
2: Well, Phil will be happy to hear the first reason why uh, B. Kaiko was not happy with Civilization VI. And heck, Phil, you're even mentioned in here. <laughs> oh. The
6: UI is absolute garbage. It is a dumpster fire.
4: Oh, that too.
5: <laughs> it <laughs> is. It is.
6: <laughs> and I wholly agree with Phil every time he mentions that this should be the number one eye that... Praxis should have on the game is fixing the UI. The notifications in base game Civ 6 are bland, terrible, sure.
2: and also disappear way too quickly, and no way to go and see
0: them again. Ah!
3: Blinks yeah. out. <clears throat> what was wrong again? He's uh, can going to have to tell me because it went Poof!
0: Yeah, I I really don't like the notifications that pop up at the top middle of the screen and then cover up like half the screen. I think those really got to go and they've got to put something Mm. on the side of the screen that you just like click on and it opens up a log of all the things that happened or something like that.
4: Something that would help is just a better, I hate to bring up EU4, but EU4 had a filter where you can just, at the bottom right, uh, you can choose what type of notifications you want and what you don't want. And I mean, even in the case of Civ 6 There's only two colors for these things. There's only uh, red or white, and you should be able to make the colors for the notifications, whatever you want, so that you can know what they are without having to actually look at them as uh, closely as you need to. There's so many little things that they could do to make the user interface better that they don't.
2: Man, when it comes to notification logs, you know what relatively recent Civilization title had that? Imagine, stick your fingers in your ears right now, Civilization Beyond Earth.
0: (laughs) Hey, I'd love some
3: of right. Yeah,
0: the little notification things where the, the other leaders would have their little Twitter feed where they would you know threaten yeah. you and congratulate <laughs> you on things. That was way better than stopping the game dead in its tracks to bring up a full screen thing of a leader just standing there with text saying, your economy sucks, even though I'm making 50 <laughs> gold per turn. And uh, your response is, okay right and there's no meaningful responses now if the game were to pop up and the leader were animated and he actually spoke to you you know they had like dialogue recorded for it and then there were multiple options and those options actually did different things and the ai leader reacted to them in different ways then i could say okay maybe that's worth stopping the game for but as it stands now it's literally just a line of text you can put it in the corner of the screen it doesn't need to stop the game and take up the whole screen
3: yeah harold sent you a scroll nice navy you have there
0: it's one of the worst things about the game too, is it just
5: it asks you to make so many clicks that you don't need to progress in any way. Right. And Beyond
0: Earth got that so right. So it was very frustrating to see a regression in that area.
2: Yeah. B. Keiko does refer to Civilization Six Beyond Earth as a disaster, quote unquote. He's probably not referring to the good thing that we're talking about here in <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, there there were legitimate things wrong with Beyond Earth. <laughs> yes. His trust in Firaxis to deliver a game I enjoy is shattered, quote-unquote, now with Civilization 6 as well as Beyond Earth, so he appreciates everybody's thoughts. Give my regards to Mackie and Phil, and Bear too, though I haven't had the pleasure of interacting with him. Wow, I've never heard you referred to just as Bear, Jason. I don't know if that's going to to inflate your ego or or, or deflate it. You know, I I don't know. It could work either way.
0: No, it works fine with me.
2: Okay, we'll be sure not to use it in the future.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
3: wow.
0: But but I, I do wanna just say for the record that I felt much the same way when Civ V first came out. After those first few days with Civ Five, where I was like, all right, new Civ game, cool, where just that the luster wore off and the game just became very dull, very stagnant. When they announced the first expansion, I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to buy this because the vanilla package was so disappointing. But, you know, I have to say that Brave New World was fantastic. Like, when Brave New World came out, like, I thought Civ 5 was on par with Civilization 4. So maybe the vanilla game isn't for him. Hopefully, the second expansion might, you know, be for Civ 6 what Brave New World was for Civ 5.
2: Yeah, for myself, when Civilization 5 came out, I was perfectly fine going back and playing Civilization IV again. Eventually, you know, within half a year, going back and just playing Civilization IV, particularly when it came to multiplayer. But when Civilization VI came out, for all its differences, for all the things that I didn't like in Civ Six as compared to Civ V, I continued on with Civilization VI and didn't look back for Civilization V. That's not the case for you, Brandon. And as we've already been saying here, what the Rise and Fall expansion pack brings does not address your issues either at all or enough. So maybe, probably not in a future patch, but maybe in a future expansion pack, it would address one or more of these enough that you would be willing to try that again. And I mean, the important thing is, is that even though we're talking about Civilization VI and you're not playing it, the fact that you still listen to the show, I really don't see what the problem is. No, okay, it's (laughs) fine.
4: That is the polycast.net. By the
0: way, <laughs> <laughs> and all hate mail to Dan. <laughs> well, it's true. The- he does get most of the hate mail, and that's correct. You should keep going with that. And if he does keep listening, hopefully at some point we'll say things about the game that you know actually do make him say, "Oh, hey, that sounds a lot better. Maybe I will go back and try it again." <laughs>
4: This was a YouTube video that featured Anton Stranger and Andrew Fredrickson. They talked for about 40 minutes about how they've managed to be at the helm in Civ. And part of it was being able to bring in new people with new, fresh perspectives. They touch a little bit about... How loyalty was developed and how it was because they were unhappy about how the midgame didn't really change the land much after the cities were settled and built up. And they called the idea for Rise and Fall the pitch, which was to, quote unquote, empower the storytelling capabilities of civilization. And this all was the animus for building the rise and fall systems. So in these systems, they discuss what they call the pillars of rise and fall systems, where basically all the systems just fed into each other. The governors help improve the cultural identity, which gives scores toward the gold ages. And Dark Ages, which gives a feeling of balance and dynamic empires, which Golden Ages scoring goes into the Pride moments, which records and displays history. So basically just Rise and Fall was designed on the basis that people want to be immersed into the achievements of the players' actions giving intrinsic motivators.
2: As you said, the video features both Fredrickson and Stranger that are producers on the title. And they talked about not only what their conception was, but revising their concept based on testing that was going on internally within the company and ultimately trying to make it fun. My favorite one, I just got to point this out, from the first prototypes, two dark ages in a row. So if your civilization was in two dark ages in a row, it turned your cities into barbarian camps.
3: Oh, uh, glad that's not in. That would If whoa. That was not fun. <laughs> no, that, that is was distinctly unfun.
2: And I, I cringed a little at that, and I thought, only because, wow, that was in the first prototype? Wow.
3: <laughs> I, I
6: can't
2: believe that it made it into a prototype. Do they not
5: have experienced players on their QA? What the crap? Right, well, oh, maybe, maybe that's why they uh, got rid of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, I guess that's why. Yes, the experienced players pointed it out. Like, the second I heard that, I'm just like, well, okay, so if I force my opponent into a situation
2: where he can't get error score, all I need to do is wait. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, And then I started thinking about, but if you had barbarians disabled in the game, does that mean they just turned into nothing? Oh, wait, we don't have to try to figure this out. That doesn't exist. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you're designing it, though, you would need to have an answer to that. One thing, two dark ages in a row, I cringe enough at the thought of a civil war situation, but at least there's an opportunity you could take your cities back, or even with the current loyalty mechanic, oh crap, the city I captured flipped, or oh crap, I settled this too close to another civilization already established, or there's a more loyalty-powerful civilization beside me, and now my city's flipped, at least I have a chance to take it over again, but into a barbarian camp? Wow. That, that, that sounds like rage quit instant right there. Yeah, well, I- I-
4: I'm glad that they took the time to make sure that uh, everything was reasonably fun. They were talking about how they got up. The dark policies was uh, something that they decided to go for as, you know, like, how can we make dark ages fun? Whether or not you're in a dark age, whether or not you're in a golden age, you can have fun. And uh, using the policy cards was a good idea because I think... Honestly, the policy card system is one of the best systems they have in the game. so utilizing that is a good thing to do. This all goes back into something we were talking about, the um, open mic. Everything that they did for Rise and Fall was really to add more intrinsic motivators to make the game feel good. It does to certain points. The historic timeline itself that they said they added to um, your Civ feel unique, that's what that's for. They said in the video that I I remember when you play the game, every good cool moment was supposed to be like a quote-unquote, they said in the video, water cooler moment, where they can take the sort of thing that you would normally talk to other people about your Civ game would also just be reflected in the histories. So again, the expansion is full of intrinsic motivators. Not a lot of extrinsic motivators, but uh, that's not what they wanted to do for this expansion. And I think what they did for it is... Okay.
2: Yeah, they were working on adding more and more historic moments to kind of tie in on the couple of points that you were addressing there, Drew. Adding more and more of those historic moments that reward the player for things that they were already doing, but not going overboard. Like, for example, each time you construct a wonder, okay, you're going to get aeroscore score for that, because that wonder is unique. Whereas, say, the first time you settle a city on a coast, you get aeroscore. score, and that could be a water cooler moment. But hey, did you guys know we founded our second city on the water? Error score we founded a third city on the water. Okay, it's 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 losing its impact. It's like okay, you've been there, you've done that. But they also tied the historic moments in part to the ages because at one point players didn't have control over their own age, because a gold age went for the top players and a
0: dark age went for the bottom players. Wow, that just sounds like a richer get richer and poor get poorer <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And so in a situation like that, you even if you are a top
2: player, you're a top player at least in that game, you may in fact want a Dark Age because not only would you get access to these Dark Age policies, which as part of their final course correction slide, they noted that Dark policies make Dark Ages uniquely powerful, but also the opportunity to pole vault yourself into a heroic age by overcoming a Dark Age, which would allow you to choose even more dedications, which would give you a bonus, which you would need to accumulate those historic moments in that error score in order to be able to get that. So it felt meaningful. It felt like in some instances, you would go outside of your comfort zone, or you would change your priority. Like, oh, I really don't need to explore on the coast right now with my first ship because I've got enough going on at home. But hey, I want to get out of a dark age and into a normal age, as I don't need to worry about a dark policy right now, I'm worried about the loyalty pressure. If I'm in a dark age, I'm not going to have as much loyalty pressure. I got close quarters. So I got to go out and get some more era score before the time runs out on the next era that is an active influence in terms of what you're thinking. So it's not just being rewarded for what you're already doing, in which case, why would some players like us even care if that was happening? It's like, okay, whatever. But it's getting you to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and the order that you're doing it for other reasons, which could then lead into even more bonuses to give you that flavor.
4: It's a little simpler on that end because you're talking about bonuses. And what they said in the video was that at the core – They were trying to, again, quote, empower the storytelling capabilities of civilization. So I think what they were going for, most of what the systems were, were supposed to make this quote-unquote storytelling of Civ more dynamic. Not so much about the bonuses, not not so much about how to play around systems, more like uh, experiencing the systems, like a role player or something.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the game's writing a little history textbook to go along with how your game's going on.
4: Mm-hmm. And that was and, what Rise and Fall essentially is, I would say.
0: And I do also want to say that one of the things, and this kind of relates to what Dan was just saying, I do really like about the era score system in Rise and Fall is that not only do you have to think more carefully about what you're doing and you know whether you want to do this thing now or wait a couple turns when it might be more beneficial in a different era, but I also very much enjoy that a lot of the era score things encourage you to do things that you might not Regularly do in your given play style. You know, there are some things that I used to never do in Civ 6 or in any Civ game at all that I do now at least try to do on a fairly regular basis in Civ 6 because it gives you some kind of era score. And there are things that previously in Civ 6 were not worth even bothering trying to do that now are something that you might actually be encouraged to race towards doing, like circumnavigating the globe. Vanilla Civ 6 didn't even acknowledge that that had ever happened, but now there's a hefty like plus three or plus four era score for doing that. So now I actually want to go to cartography and get my caravels. And even if I'm not on a island map where, you know, navies are particularly important, it's still something that might be worth pursuing for those era points. And you know what, Drew, I think I both agree with you and disagree with you at the same time. Are you confused
2: yet?
4: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> you always That's have a- to agree with me.
2: I agree with you that the intent was not for players to start looking at the particular mechanics of it and the specific values of what they're going to be getting, but rather to have the flavor of telling the story of what it is that they were already doing. Mm. But I also agree that you don't have to think about, am I really telling a story? Do I care about what the story is? Because even if you never look at those historic moments, you are going to be notified, hey, guess what? You're now in this particular age. And you would see on the screen and be like, oh, okay, I got this age because I fall within this range. How did I get those points? You're going to then go back over your timeline and then start looking at, okay, I got this amount of error score for this and this amount of error score for that, and I'm starting to pay more attention about how many turns are left in that particular error. So whether you enjoy the flavor or not, the flavor benefits those that really want that and felt that was lacking in Civilization Six. kind of even makes me think of what Civilization Beyond Earth tried to do and what Alpha Centauri did really well, which was immerse you in a story, even though there was a lot of backstory with Alpha Centauri that you obviously don't get in Civilization Six. But to hook people in that want that, but at the same time, it doesn't detract or take away from those who don't care about that. So it was a win-win in both of those respects.
4: Oh, absolutely! I'm just as much, you know, as as you play, looking okay. There's 12 era score before I can get a golden age. Before I can get out of the ancient era, what can I do to do that? You know, I, I'm I'm a very uh, intrinsic motivated player as well, but I think that that's a symptom out of what they were trying to do at their core, and that was try to build this dynamic storyline. And uh, everything else grew out of that. That's what they're talking about, at least in the video. So that's why I try to take that side. But I am also not too much for the uh, intrinsic motivator either. But that said, loyalty is fine.
2: Mm, Other than the fact that you just called both of us symptom. I'm good with what you just said. (laughs) I didn't say yours. We're the cause, Drew. We are the cause of all the things that are good and wrong in the world. Just you and I. Dan, you are part of the problem. Sure, whatever. (laughs) I am that powerful. Thank you, Phil, for acknowledging that at long last. <laughs> you will now pay tribute. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Yeah, I've got some tribute for you right here. (laughs) Is
3: it an army?
4: Not all symptoms are bad.
5: See, I've got like uh catapult rocks and spears and a couple other things
2: I can show you as tribute. You've got your tribute right there, and my response would be, Aw, is that it? Yeah,
5: now bent over.
2: Otherwise (laughs) in the video, earlier on they talk about the design coming together. Drew, you referred to the dynamic empires aspect before. They wanted it as a theme, not a single system.
4: That's what they referred to when uh, building the rise and fall. That said, emergencies uh, was not in there. And, well, I I won't say what I'm going to talk about about emergencies, but...
2: Well, I think even given what we've already said on this episode about emergencies, I think that's fine that they didn't talk about that specifically in this positive context of execution. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about positive things. (laughs) The loyalty is the glue that ties the systems together. The only thing that I noticed in there, this often happens with an expansion, you know, we're adding new mechanics or modifying existing mechanics and we want them all to work together. And it seems like, well, what about existing mechanics that you're not touching or you're not modifying? Do they still work? Do they still fit within the new mechanics? At the very least, do they not detract for what it is that you're trying to do? And I think for the most part, even though I didn't talk about this, I, I they hit that. Although I don't know if that was purposeful and rather just incidental.
4: I think they did the best they could with uh, their plan. That said, like I've said before, I'm not quite as interested in in the game as I was hoping to in Rise and Fall, but I think did a good job of tying in all those intrinsic motivators.
2: Uh, Andrew Fredrickson said right towards the end of the video that, quote, It was a lot of polish and bug fixing, and we finally got the expansion out the door to something that we think plays really well, and we're hoping that everybody's enjoying it. But he also said at the beginning, uh, when he was introducing himself, that before being a part of the Rise and Fall expansion for Civilization Six, he was a part of the team that worked on Civilization Beyond Earth Rising Tide, so he quipped, I'm not trying to get the word Rise into every title, but it seems to be working so far. Well, I'll show you a... Hmm.
3: No, Phil.
2: (laughs) I'm sure you would, Phil, but uh, we've seen that before and, you know, we weren't impressed. (laughs) (laughs) It's
3: not that kind of podcast. (laughs) News to me, right?
2: Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign.
3: Collective achievements.
5: Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment.
2: For more information, visit thepolycast.net. Slash Patreon.
3: Call in today. today.
2: In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301 637
3: Polly.
5: In Europe, 44 121 7659 That's 44-121-288-POLI.
0: The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked
3: about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast,
5: or about Polycast in general,
2: log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Of course, if you don't have Niter in that instance, then you've got these melee strikes, Swordsmen at 35. Well, if you're running Oligarchy, it's going to give you plus 4 Governments, so and then you're at 39. If your Swordsmen have been used battle to that point, either as Warriors first and now Swordsmen, and you can get to battle cry, then you can get plus 7 Combat Strength versus Melee and ranged units. Okay, now we're up to 46. A Musketman is 55. If you've got a Great General in that instance, which can give you, say, another 4 or 5 Combat Increase, then there's the chance that you're going to be able to do that but that's a lot of things yes that you have to add up as opposed to okay but what if i didn't have an opportunity to use my swordsman there aren't any barbarians around and i haven't been able to go that upgrade path and now i'm just being swarmed by musketmen so i don't have those incremental unit upgrades there is the possibility that you can react you're not necessarily screwed if they get muskman particularly particular the ai because it depends on their number how quickly they're upgrading how well they're using it where it's positioned etc but in order to be able to respond to that other than saying gee you should tech better <laughs> some additional incremental upgrades would be helpful when you find yourself in a situation where i just haven't been able to line up these other things and i'm trying to react in the moment it's always good to plan but but crap happens and so it's, it would be
0: nicer to have some more options in order to be able to deal with that And on top of that, I just also want to point out that all of those bonuses and buffs that you just pointed out, your opponent can have all of those too, right? In which case, yeah, you've got your swordsman up to like 46 or 47 strength or whatever, but now their musketman is at like 70 or 80. And it's possible too, which is why I tied into that, yes,
2: it would also be
0: nice. And yes,
2: it's worth pointing out that yes, your opponent can have those as well on those musketmen, particularly with the promotions, if they too have now been able to go from warrior to swordsman or musketman, or even from swordsman to musketman. So those incremental unit upgrade paths would be helpful
4: hey everybody this was polycast episode three hundred and thirty <laughs> which is um all right i was joined by the bye bye makalua
3: out of the dumpster fire and into the landfill fire
4: the main team
5: so now
0: we've established that losing energy is actually the way to go
4: mega bears fan oh
0: you mean i have to say hello and goodbye uh you expect too much alpha charge
1: Thank you, and uh, been a pleasure discussing with the game with you guys.
0: Now, was it just me,
2: or in your conclusion there, Drew, were you saying Mackey's name as a question mark? Because it was like I was joined by Mackalua. Sorry, it was I, like an inflection I, I was on the to... end there that you weren't really certain if Mackie was here or not, and that's you it know was actually a matter it wasn't wasn't of...
4: certain if he was saying it right. No, it was a matter of I had to remember who was on the cast.
2: Oh, my head. <laughs> Mackie, <laughs> you're not memorable on the show me. apparently. I that's Ooh, that's rough. <laughs> <sad singing> what? We didn't
4: close it, right? Because we still have an outro, I think.
3: Yeah. Who's doing that? Let's check. <laughs> That's our oh. This is awesome.
5: Oh,
2: it is me. <laughs> let's just keep going. Like
5: this, this is
4: good. This
2: is fine. <laughs> now let's go back to our hold music. dun 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 dun. All right. Well, this
4: was um. Oh, shit, I didn't prepare for this. <laughs> this.
5: This was something other than a dumpster fire. i <laughs> 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 honest. Uh-oh.
0: All right, so, hey. Polycast, the official podcast of the NFL. <laughs> 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 and now we're going to get sued.
4: Well, you know, Dan, I really think that you're a very good editor. And I think um, (laughs) when we get get to the end of this, I think it's going to be looking very, very smooth. uh, When you you, you say that (laughs) Dan's
1: going to edit it to make everyone sound smarter, that's funny.
2: Record date March 24th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.